Hello everyone and welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Ads Lyson. Please enjoy part two of my conversation with Lee Spencer. Just talk a little bit about, you know, you went from being in the Marines and then you went and did something else, didn't you? Something a little bit different. Well, first of all, I put in for selection for the SBS and I failed. But I, everyone who, who, who failed selection has got a sub story and tell you why they'd fail on it and I really don't want to be that person um, but there's a point to this and otherwise I wouldn't say it it's um, I I ended up doing it uh, 32 and at the time that was the cutoff point so I had to get special dispensation to go on and I came off quite early I came off on the fan dance and um, ended up going Having to go, uh, I got a small niggly injury that sounds really, really pathetic, but it wasn't. It was agony. It was I bruised the bottom of my heel, and I couldn't put any weight on it. So it during that first week where you do, you get a couple of thrashings and um, there's a couple of yomps that you do, and then it finishes the end of that week with a fan dance. By the time I got to the fan dance, I couldn't put any weight on my heel. Um, I then had to go straight back on the next one, which was a summer one, with no, I couldn't put it off. And uh, because of the age, uh, so I was 33 when I went on the second one. And again, I came off from the fan dance. And I went back to Paul, and they give you an interview, you know, what went wrong. And I said, well, I just didn't cut it. And I was so determined to not be one of those people who's got a massive sob story about it. And they were going to put me on. Um, I, I spoke to the uh, Sergeant Major in T-Wing. And he said, what do you mean you didn't cut it? And I said to him, I goes, look, you know you get those people, as I said to you earlier, who go out and run six-minute miles after going out and boozing and never do fizz. Like Bondi, he's one of them, hate them. I'm the exact opposite of that, so I have to work hard. So I said to him, it was never going to be easy. And he, were, and he looked at me and oh, okay, and kind of accepted that. And I said, and I don't know where this came from, it just came out. And I said, because the sad thing is, I I know I can pass. I think I can pass it. And he goes, why'd you say that? I goes, you know, you get those lads, like, you know, when it's pissing down and you're like two days, three days raining on exercise in Sennybridge. And there's that idiot still making jokes and laughing. And so that's me. I don't, don't tend to get, uh, down <laughs> no sort of situation so I, I kind of know I think I know that I could have done it and he went wait there and he went back out and he came back into his office he says right follow me he took me into his office and there was a uh, I'll take it as an SBS officer young officer he says right he goes train as if you're going back on for a third attempt we've got a good relationship with um, uh, Hereford he goes, um, we'll try and get you on for a third attempt. So I was like, right, brilliant. So I carried on training and uh, went up and done the fan dance a couple of times, smashed the times on it, you know, that you're supposed to do and really thought, I'm, I'm going to do this. Then um, I got called in to the office at work and says, right, Frank, you're not on the um, list for selection. I went, really? He went, yeah, it, like the uh, nominals just come out. So I rang up T-Wing. I spoke to the OC T-Wing there. I'm funnying up about uh, just as we come out of lockdown. So a couple, about two, three months ago, I met him 
and relayed this story to him. And uh, I rang him up and he says, okay, what's your name? I gave him my name. And he says, oh, I'll look into it. And he rang me back a couple of hours later. He says, look, he goes, it's not good news. He goes, I can't get you back on. He goes, come down to a combination of both your age and coming off early. Um, both times and basically it came down to being old and crap <laughs> he said if he was old if it was just your age we could have done something or if it was just that you come off early uh, the fan dials both times we might have been able to do something and um, he goes I went okay he goes uh, and just before he ended the call he said you know one of those moments like when the sergeant major called me back in I said you'll be a fucking uh, brilliant bootneck he said uh, I want you to know I tried as hard as I could I've done everything that I could to get you on. And that stuck with me. Because he didn't need to say that, you know. And it seems like such a small thing, but it meant so much to me then. And I said I didn't want to start this with a sob story about selection. But that's true. I didn't fail selection then. I failed selection years ago by not going on it by being scared of failure. And it was that fear of failure stopped me applying until, um, well, until I was too old, really, to do it. Or, or up against it. I would have had a better, I mean, it's nothing to say that I would have passed it, but I would have had a better chance. And that's the, the, the most ridiculous fear there is, that fear of failure. And, and that, and that's what, um, that's really where I allowed fear to, to overtake my life and, and informed the decision because it was that fear of failure that stopped me from applying for it earlier. And as, as for when I did fail, there's, there's a lot of people, and I've heard this loads of times, say you need to be lucky on selection. And I don't think you do. I think I, I could have passed out. I, I know that I could have passed selection if I had the absence of bad luck. But that's not what selection does. It's not what it's there for. I think that selection is there to select people who can have bad luck, who can have a little niggling injury, who can get lost on, on Navex and still pull it out the bag. That's what they're looking for, the people who've got that extra you know, that, that spare capacity where they can have bad luck and still get through. So if that's the case, if that's what selection's for, then actually it served its purpose for me because I'd never, you know, even at my fittest, I don't think I'd really had that in me. I don't think that I really had the ability to get over the hills and, and had like a couple of days where I'd gone wrong on a Navex or, you know, something had gone wrong and still be able to put it out the bag. So I failed selection. Um, and then I didn't really have much time to contemplate on it. So I went back to Charlie Company and then went straight out to Iraq and then came back from that. And then a couple of years later, it really started eating into me because I'd, I'd really put my heart and soul. There's a lot of people who fail selection, struggle afterwards. A lot of people go outside because 
as bootnecks, we put our heart and soul into everything we attempt. And I'd put so much of myself into it. And then all of a sudden it was gone. And um, I really struggled to motivate myself to do anything. And then um, it's only kind of started getting back into, took a good year to get over it. Not the disappointment, but that, that loss of a mission or a goal. Um, that when I, when I, uh, I've done my seniors and I was a troop sergeant up at Faz Lane. I really started kind of to start thinking again. And I put in for, um, a thing called special duties, um, Op Samson. When I was, I'd done an island tour in 94, 95 with, uh, K Company. And before that, I put in for a sniper's course. And you know what? I got so much shit for that. Thinking, you sprog, you know, you shouldn't put in for a sniper's course until you've done an island. You shouldn't do it until you've done a Norway. And uh, I got a lot of grief from the lads, like for having the audacity of putting myself in for a sniper's. Done the selection, the in, like in unit selection. And I'd done really well on it. And I passed and got on the actual sniper's course. And that, that changed for me uh, how people viewed me or how like my standing in the company because all of a sudden I was okay <laughs> you know two days before I was a, you know a gobby sprog who you know who put in for something that he shouldn't have and then I passed it and then I was all right um go figure and uh we I've done a sniper's course I failed the sniper's course but got put in a sniper multiple because back then the sniper course was a pass or fail on the badge test and two people out of 12 passed my course. And um, so even having done the sniper's course was still a big deal. Uh, and I got put on the, uh, I got put in a sniper multiple and we worked with just exclusively with um, JSG who were the forerunners to the DH unit, defense unit unit. And so that kind of, that job was planted in my mind years and years ago. And I started thinking about it again. And uh, I put in for it in um, 2006, done the selection in 2007 and, and went on the course, uh, failed the course, um, and then went back. And uh, that they split the course in half, like they had the basic and advanced. And you have to pass the basic to get onto the advanced. Well, I passed the basic, but I failed an element of shoot. I, I failed a shooting test with a pistol, essentially. No, I, they didn't put me on to the, the advanced course. So I had to go back and, and redo that. Um, and out of, it was probably about, with the selection, probably about 126 people started out and no one from my course passed, essentially. But out of that course, so out of essentially 126, three of us went back and eventually um, passed. So I spent the last seven, eight years in my career and my three tours of Afghanistan in that world. That must have been quite um, an interesting a few of the 
interesting tours because it, it's it wasn't your conventional warfare fighting, wasn't it? It wasn't like you weren't going out in troops and and company groups. You were integrated with the population, weren't you, during those times? Not not entirely. Um, it, it the job was split into um, uh, two main strands. Really, you had what we call forward deployed operators who were attached to battle groups and gave them advice on and and um sort of done the job on your own and you also had um uh ended up free detachments who sort of worked on their own um can't really talk a lot about uh you know how we operated or what we actually done but i I really, really, really loved the job. It, it really, you really mattered. You saw um, the results of what you were doing and they were instant results. You saw it day in, day out, especially in the fighting season. I think sometimes when you're, when, you know, when you're with the lads and you're just going out on patrol and it seems like another pointless patrol going and doing the same old ground and you it can it sometimes be a bit demoralizing because you can't see the result of what you're doing you just see the negative results of what you're doing you can't see the actual positive of what you're doing it's or it can be quite hard to see that whereas luck you know what i was doing we saw those results daily and and I loved it, really. And I, I looked at what I was doing, and um, I really, really felt that I'd finally got to a point where I was happy, and I could not. It, it, I didn't look in the mirror and not, you know. So I used to look in the mirror and hated the person I saw. And then after joining the Corps, and, and, and it got to a point where I could be happy, you know, with that person. I didn't hate him. But that, my last tour um, in 2012, the end of that tour, I was, I, I weren't just, you know, happy with the person I saw in the mirror. I was really proud of the person that I was. Um, and I was, and I was, I was as proud of the struggle, the hurdles, being told at 13, you're not going to be a bootneck, you know, going again to the careers office at 18 and being told you're not what we're looking for, getting in training and, and then failing selection and then failing the course that I was doing and having to go back. So all the times that I'd failed and picked myself up and gone again and failed and picked myself up and gone again to actually get there. I was as proud of the the struggle that it was to get there as I was of actually proud of myself for being that person. Yeah. I think, you know, what you were talking about earlier when you do your talks about resilience, you can see through, you know, what we're, what we've been talking over the, the last hour and 20 minutes is you can see how you've built that resilience up. And that word is becoming quite apparent in what you're talking about and, you know, and, and how 
you you deal with things you know today but i didn't set out to be a resilient person i set out to be the opposite of that i set out to you know <laughs> you know it's it's a no one wants to be crap at everything they do. No one wants to fail. But, but everyone has to work at something, though. Yeah. You, know, you do get these people in life that, that fail at something, but then just give up, and, and, they, and they don't try again. Um, maybe they don't have the advice from people to help them with that. But it takes a lot of, I think, a, a lot of courage sometimes to go, do you know what? I failed at this. Someone has told me that I'm not very good at it or I'm never going to achieve something, but you've just kind of overcome that and done it anyway and achieved what you've set out it's to do. It's having a dream. It's being a dreamer. I say to um, in kids in school, I say, right, put your hands up if you've ever been told, told off for daydreaming, for looking out the window or not concentrating. Nearly every hand goes up. I say, that's your biggest gift. If you can dream, if you can keep hold of that dream, then you can do anything. You really can. And that's that's the important thing with me is, is I'm a dreamer. <laughs> that's 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 what's got me where I am now. So you got to the point where, you know, you were happy and then inevitably you were driving along the M three and just explain about that. Yeah, I was um, going back to work uh, after a Christmas leave. And um, I came across, it was about midnight, I came across a car that had crashed into a central reservation. And uh, I pulled over. And, and I, you know, anyone who'd been Afghan or Iraq up until that point, you, you're given so much. Uh, medical training. I counted myself as a very competent first aider. Uh, so I pulled over, and lucky the people that whose car had crashed, they'd got out. There's three, three Polish people. There's uh, two guys and a very heavily pregnant woman. I was checking them over, making sure they were all okay, and they were. And I thought the only thing that I can do now is to walk along the hard shoulder and use the uh, torch on my phone to warn oncoming traffic. And I turned to go, and as I turned, another car crashed into theirs with such force that their engine came flying out and I was hit by an engine and gearbox knocked me about 12 metres over the barrier um, and I landed on the grass verge on the other side and uh, my left leg was completely dislocated at the knee, knee so it was pointing at a right angle I kind of landed kneeling down so my right leg that isn't there anymore I couldn't see that because it was kind of going behind me at the knee which is normal when you're nil, but my left leg was going out sideways. <laughs> um, I crawled, fell down like the slope and crawled back under the barrier onto the hard shoulder. And that's when I saw that my right leg had gone. But instantly, my thought process was, fuck, my leg's gone. But that's not the important thing here. I knew that I had between 7 and 12 minutes to stop the bleed, otherwise I'll bleed to death which very nearly happened. Um, a, uh, a passing Rastafarian called Frank from uh, Hackney came um, and tried to get a tourniquet around my leg. We couldn't get it tight enough. So I got his daughter to stand on me femoral and put all of her weight on her heel into like my groin 
and that's what saved my life um, waiting for the ambulance to come along um, they I'd lost so much blood uh, they uh, they had to fly plasma out to me um, so they gave me a transfusion on the side of the road and then put me in a helicopter and flew me to uh, St George's Hospital in Tooting man that's just that's just a crazy turn of events you know from from you the think point that's of... crazy sorry at the start of that journey just up the road in Oakhampton I had a flat tire I took a picture I changed my wheel on the side of the road took a picture and put it on Facebook with a caption could this journey get any worse oh, and you haven't even started it yet <laughs> yeah. oh man yeah coincidences really you know that that turn of events must have just you know I, I can't, can't even imagine it personally. Do you know what, though? It weren't a massive shock to me. And this sounds mad. Right? But any anyone who walks out the gate in Afghan, you, you, you contemplate that happening. Because it, it was so commonplace. You kind of make peace with it and put it to your back of your head. And you go, now I've been in Afghan for two years when this happened. But, you know, bizarrely, I still had that kind of resource in me. So when, when I saw my leg had gone, it really was, oh, fuck, fuck, my leg's gone. But it weren't a shock. I know that sounds bonkers, but I suppose, like, you know, for 18 months of my life, it was kind of like a commonplace thing. So when it happened to me... I didn't really look at it and go, oh. The other thing is, a lot of people, a lot of people see an irony to that. You do three Afghans, come back okay and lose your leg on the side of the road. I don't. Like, life happened to me. We was talking about that earlier, about fate and everything, and I said, shit happens. Well, shit happened to me. But luckily, I'd been in Afghan, and I knew what to do. I If I hadn't, react, if I hadn't been in Afghan, I wouldn't have reacted as quickly. Even though I might have had the medical training, I wouldn't have reacted as quickly. And actually, if I'd have delayed anything by a couple of minutes, I wouldn't be here now. I'd lost over half my body's blood, and I knew. I knew I was on a knife edge between life and death. I knew. Um, this sounds like, and I almost feel like I have to apologise that I'm over-dramatising what happened but there is no other word I can use that adequately describes that moment when when I was laying on the road before Frank the Rastafarian came along I could feel the abyss is the only word I can I can describe as a real tangible thing it was it was absolutely there I could feel it. There's, um, you know, the, the uh, Invictus poem. Yes. If you don't, if you've not heard the Invictus poem, then please just Google it and, and read it. That those words really, really describe really well that that moment there that, um, on the side of the road. So I. I I, I, 
I was told later that I'd lost over half my blood and that I was on the edge of life and death. And I knew that anyway. When you start approaching losing half your body's blood, that's when people died. I'd gone beyond that. And I knew, I knew that I very, very nearly died. So when I did lose my leg, it, 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 I don't see it as an irony. I see it lucky that I had done the Afghan, so I wouldn't be in now. And really, when I woke up the next day in hospital, I looked down, I was like, oh, my leg's gone, but I'm here, I'm here. Because I knew how hard I fought to stay alive and to actually be there the next day. So the fact I'd lost my leg didn't really matter that much. Yeah, I th- you say it's the irony. There are so many, there are quite a few similar stories about people, you know, going and going to Afghan and, you know, being in like the most perilous situations and then coming back and, you know, being in a car crash or um, being in a situation when you have, you know, life-changing injuries like you, you are. And there must have been a point, I mean, I, I could only think from maybe my own personal point of view of just sat there and, and and actually kind of laughed at it a little bit at the irony of it being in those situations where, you know, you're the other side of the world, you're in one of the most dangerous places, Afghanistan, during that time, being shot at, being trying, people trying to kill you. And here you are now trying to help somebody else out and then you know you're in you're back in your own country and something like that happens it must have been quite strange when you look back on it a little bit no not at all no no honestly i honestly um yeah it yeah but when when it happened it, it really was oh it weren't a shock i think if i if I hadn't been to Afghanistan and I hadn't gone out on the ground and I hadn't made peace with myself and really thought that, you know, this is, you know, is a definite, um, there's a definite chance that something like this could happen. If I didn't have that resource, then maybe it would have been like that, but it wasn't. It would, it weren't a shock. Um, and, if I hadn't been to Afghan, I know I wouldn't be in now. So it's because I went to Afghanistan that I'm alive. And it's kind of just life happened to me. We're talking about your uh, your injury, losing your leg. Um, but through all of this, you you could have been one of those people that took two routes with, with this. You could have been one of those guys that kind of went, started to feel sorry for yourself and gone sort of like the darker route with it, but you, but you haven't. And going back to what we were talking about at the start of the podcast, where you're talking about the charities, you've done so much stuff to basically give back is probably the best way to kind of describe it. Um, yeah, but I get, I get a lot out of it myself. Um, for me, uh, doing what I do now gives me that sense of doing something that matters. You'll see a lot of the lads who go outside struggle 
um, the vast majority of lads go outside, struggle for the first year, two years. They really do. My experience of that is that if you'd have said to me, what are you going to miss when you go outside? You'd have said the lads, the camaraderie, you know, doing exciting things that we tend to take for granted, like going on helicopters and live firing ranges and things like that. You'd have, I would have said one of them. It isn't what I missed most and what I miss is doing something that matters, that sense of service. And none of us really even think about it. And you'd probably laugh at me if I, if I said that, but it's true that what we do matters. And the this kind of stuff that I do now, uh, that matters as well and it gives me that sense of doing something that's worthwhile it, it makes like yesterday i was on the uh phone trying to insure a vehicle and i get to uh what your job is and i'm like that well i don't know <laughs> and they're trying to find what i am and and uh, the nearest i can get is like a motivational speaker and i really ain't that i do what I do. Like my primary mission and everything I do is to keep wounded injured servicemen, especially bootnecks, in the nation's conscience so the Royal Marines charity can continue to raise money. Um, it's, uh, it's, you know, I raise money in the, the things that I do. But for me, that's not the be-all and end-all. It's it, the, the most important thing that I can do is to is to raise the profile of the charity so that they can carry on. You know, the further we get away from Afghan and Iraq, the less people care, and the harder it is for the charities to uh, to get money. That's so that's just not in the public point, yeah, in, in the public eye anymore. So that so that's what I do now. But there's no name for it. <laughs> there's nothing that I can say that yes, this is what I do, and people. Um, you know, to pay the, uh, the, the mortgage and um, put food on the plate. People pay me to come and tell them um, about the things that I've done. I try well, my hardest not to be, I'm not be an inspirational, motivational speaker because you just want to punch people like that in the face. <laughs> Anyone who stands up and say, hey, listen to me, I'm inspirational. You too can be like me. You just, you know, that it's not me. <laughs> It's kind of strange, isn't it? Because, like, you know, you're laughing about it now. And, and to be fair, you know, it's it's quite humorous to to think that your life and your experiences, people can benefit out of that just by you talking about something that you think is normal, but to other people it isn't as well. The, the, yeah, but it is normal. Otherwise, what's normal? Everything's normal, isn't it? The The... The the problem I have with it is I haven't got the answers, you know. Um, and the closest I get to it is one of my talks is about resilience. And I go back over my story and I've, I've, I've identified nine different methods th that I've used that have helped me get over quite big hurdles. 
um, and they're quite dramatic hurdles and people like them because it's a story you know I'm, it said earlier that you know sometimes when I sat talking and sit down I put a video on I'm like bloody hell that's mental it is crazy I didn't ask for it I didn't set out for crazy things to happen to me it just did um, but I, I use that story as a way of saying to people look here's nine different ways that I found useful when you come up against a problem, which we all do, then try one of these. They may work. If they don't, you know, use them as a tool and put them in your toolkit. If it works, brilliant. If it doesn't, then you find something else that works, good for you. But that's that's as close to being what people would consider to be like an inspirational, motivational speaker that I'm comfortable getting. I'm really not comfortable standing up and telling people how they can you know follow my top tips on life and Tim Robbins improve style. yourself yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you know just yeah just talk a little bit about um for those people that don't know don't know you know some of the um some of the things that you've achieved them for the charities <clears throat> right I got I said um when I first lost my leg I set myself a goal of raising ten thousand pounds for the woman's charity <coughs> excuse me um, but the um, the the uh, off at the end of that year, I, I raised over twelve, I think, over twelve thousand. At the end of that year, I got a uh, email asking for volunteers to put, you know, for the first all amputee crew to row across the Atlantic, and I put in for that. Went on a big selection process, and ended up in two thousand fifteen sixteen. Um, rowing across the Atlantic with a crew of uh, three other amputees. In fact, we only had three legs between the four of us. So we've got a Guinness World Record for that. And when I got to the other side, obviously I had a few drinks. <laughs> and uh, I said to my wife, Claire, um, you know, I'm thinking about doing this solo. And I think she put that down to just a few too many drinks that night. But it stuck in my head. And it seemed that I said about doing something that matters and how how that's what you miss when you leave and I saw an opportunity where I'd kind of come to the end of my rehab so I was as good as I was going to get I was also I reckon I had about another year before I got medically discharged so I was still getting paid by the Marines so I could work on something full time and I just rode across an ocean as a team of four so I kind of knew how to do that. So it just sometimes, you know, the universe points in a direction and it's much easier to go with it than to fight against it. So everything seemed to be pointing that way. So I saw an opportunity that might not come around again to do something that I thought would be really worthwhile. So I set out to row. Um, there was a There was a record an ocean rowing record set in 2002 by a Norwegian called Steinhoff, and he got the record for the fastest solo unsupported row from mainland Europe to mainland uh, South America. Um, and that was 96 days, 12 hours and 45 minutes. And I thought that record was gettable. And I thought if I could beat that record as a disabled person, that'd be like a really big deal um so excuse me that was the background 
and the reasoning behind uh, doing uh, my solo run, um, which I set off last year, uh, January um, the 9th. Yeah, January the 9th, 2019. I set off from Porto Mayo in the bottom of Portugal. And um, I rode solo uh, to South America. I went into Cayenne in French Guiana. And I was trying to beat the record set by Steinhoff. I was the fourth person in history to do it. But I was also the fastest by uh, over a month. I beat Stein's record by 36 days. Uh, so I eventually done it in uh, 60 days. 16 hours, 6 minutes. That's crazy. And you got, uh, is it two world? Three more Guinness World Records. I think Guinness were doing a uh, buy one, get one free. Because <laughs> I got the the first physically disabled person to row solo across the Atlantic. I got that record. I got the fastest, so the able-bodied record. Uh, that's the one I was really after. But Guinness gave me the longest ocean row by a physically disabled person as well. So I didn't know I was getting that. So, yeah, I got four Guinness World Records at the moment. Yeah. And not this year, coming out this year, last year's, I was in last year's Guinness Book of Records, which is probably the, the biggest and best thing that's ever happened to me. You know, when you're a kid and you get the Guinness Book of oh, Records yeah, for Christmas. For Christmas. Yeah, yeah. So I grew up with uh, record breakers on telly. Yeah, me too. And uh, seeing um, Roy Castle playing his trumpet and singing Dedication, it was a big part of my childhood. And to end up in the Guinness Book of Records is just like the most, most incredible, amazing thing to happen to me. The fact that I'm on the back page with the world's most expensive pigeon, that don't really matter. I'm still in the Guinness Book of Records. But that's also a feat in itself, isn't it not? Well, uh, being in the page with the world's most expensive pigeon. Yeah. <laughs> it was actually in the newspaper the other day. That's, um, uh, a pigeon was sold for, I think it was like 2.6 million somewhere in, in America. So that record's been beaten, but my record's still standing. <laughs> oh, man. What was the one of the most, like, harrowing things? I mean, it's another podcast in itself, really, that uh, the, the Rose. But, you know, what, what, was the, what was the most memorable thing that you can take away from, um, from that row? The, the first row, um, the obviously first or second night, I can't remember which one it was. I can remember like having, a, it was almost like a panic attack. You'd get a knock on the door, bang, bang. Um, <laughs> <laughs> 10 minutes, and that was your 10 minute call before you get out and start rowing. And um, I remember thinking to myself, I can't do this. You know, up until then, the most nautical thing I'd ever done was a tall point ferry drunk. And then all of a sudden, I'm in a little rowing boat, surrounded by sea, absolutely petrified. I'm thinking, I remember thinking the arrogance of believing I could row across the ocean. I've never rowed anything, you know, apart from getting on a rowing machine and hating it like everybody else. And it took every scrap of moral courage I possessed to get out of that cabin and start rowing. But once I did, the spell was broken instantly because I realised that I could do it. I could do it. In fact, it's quite easy. All I have to do is get out of that cabin every four hours and row for two hours. And it's a massive cliche, isn't it, about breaking things up? You know, if you look at the mountain, you think, oh, am I going to get over that? 
Whereas if you look down and just take each step, it becomes easy. And I used that. I used that. Now, it's so true. I, I was looking at the whole ocean and thinking, how am I going to get across that? Whereas if I think of it in individual, like, well, basically, you just get out and row for two hours every four. Simple. Anyone can do that. And that's that got me to the start line, that understanding and knowing that breaking things up and not looking at the whole, just looking at the individual thing, steps. And that really helped get me across the second time. Um and the second row was um that it was really difficult really really difficult the the sense of isolation and fear was horrific <coughs> excuse me at points in on my solo row in the middle of the ocean in the middle of the road at points, the closest human being to me was in the International Space Station. To give you an idea of how isolated you were. And the fear just eats into every part of your being. Now, I've been scared. You know, we've both been in tricky situations and dangerous situations. But being scared when you're part of a team and being scared when you're on your own two completely different things and the other thing that I've taken away from that is no one is on their own you know being part of a team no man is an island is the saying and it's so true even though you think you're on your own you're not even though I thought I was on my own I still had the phone and I and that really kept me going really kept me going and the last and probably the most significant thing that I took away from the second row was the last two weeks um, I'm, I'm writing about this at the moment and I've got my logbook out and wrote every the days down I've done this two three days ago and I've got it written down the moment it happened I hit the wall um, same as any a uh, marathon runner, uh, athlete, who hits the wall. But in a marathon, you've got about three miles to go when you hit the wall. I hit the wall with two weeks to go. And I was utterly exhausted. Added to that was I soon became mentally exhausted because the mental gymnastics I had to, to do to get out and row every uh, two hours. I was rowing two on one off during the day and two on two off at night. The mental gymnastics I had to go through to get out and row was horrific. So I soon became um, mentally exhausted and then emotional exhaustion was straight on that tail. And because of the peculiarity, the, the bottom of my boat, um, I've got loads of barnacles on it. And when you're rowing an ocean, you should get out every 10, you know, a week to 10 days to get underneath and scrub the barnacles off to keep the boat rowing going. So the boat, I could, because of the size of the waves, I couldn't get out. I got out once, um, just be, uh, after the Canaries to scrub underneath the boat. And then after that, I couldn't get out at all because the weather was so bad. So the boat was slowing right down. And as you come into the Canaries, there's a current that goes um, up from south to north 
called the um sorry as you're coming into south america it's called the south american current and it goes up past brazil and up into the caribbean and it runs at four knots in places which is really strong so we'd come down like 150 miles to use that current to come up into where i was finishing now that calculation of 150 miles was based on how fast the current's going and how fast i was going in the other direction so i couldn't slow up because if i'd have slowed up i'd have got pushed too far north by the current and north of Cayenne, where i was coming in is nothing but mangrove swamp for hundreds of miles so there's not even a beach that i could just land on you know i it was nowhere to land i had to come in at Cayenne, so i had to keep going and that last, last two weeks is by a country mile. A country mile, the hardest, most difficult and horrible thing I have ever, ever done. It was a real, and I can't, I can't emphasize this enough. It was a real black hole. I was utterly physically exhausted mentally exhausted and emotionally I was in a really really bad place but I couldn't stop rowing and the thing that got me through that was a lesson I learned in training um, remember I said where I was just glad to be there at the end of every Friday end of the week I was just glad to be there and I used to see people leave and I'd be shocked because they were a lot fitter, a lot stronger than me. And I, I've, you know, they're the people that I assume would be there at the end. And every one of them said the same thing. And it was always, oh yeah, uh, it's, it's not for me. And I knew that was a lie because the work it takes to get to the start line of Royal Marines training, you can't just turn up at a careers office and say, I fancy being a Royal Marine. And then you end up in training. It don't work that way. You have to learn core history, you know. You have to you have to train. You, you have to go on through lots of tests. It takes a lot of effort to get to the start line. So you wanted it then. It it was for you then. So what's changed? You can't say, "Oh, I, I've experienced it and now I know," because you haven't. That's training isn't the Royal Marines, and everybody knows that it's training. You have to get over that hurdle to get into the Marines. So if they'd have done that and then gone, oh, it's not for me, then that makes sense. But to say it's not for me, I knew it was a lie. You know, and they're telling themselves a lie. And I know that I knew that if I'd have left, if I left training, my my low self-esteem, I suppose, would never have let me get away with believing that I could have done it, but it just wasn't for me. And it's a lie that I wouldn't have been able to tell myself. And it's that being truthful with yourself, you know, knowing. I knew that if I left training, if I gave up, I'd have to admit to myself that I gave up. And it's the same in the boat. When when I was there thinking, right, if I don't row this session, I'll be a lot stronger and I'll be able to row more. I knew that was a lie. 
You're never going to replace that two hours. If you don't get out and row, you're never going to replace it. So just admit to yourself, don't lie. Just admit to yourself that that's a lie and then deal with what the consequences. Sometimes, right, I'd count to 10 and go, right, I'm going to count to 10 and go out and row. And I get to 10 and I go, I once done that for 40 minutes. That's our hot, that, that's the pit I was in. But at least I got out and rode for an hour and 20. And I knew that I wasn't strong enough to get out straight away. And I'm happy with that. But I'm not lying to myself. And that, that not lying to yourself, I learned in training. Royal Marines training. And that, ultimately, is what got me out of that black hole. And got me uh, across the finish line. Mate, that's some inspirational stuff there. Um, I don't I don't really know what to say to that, if I'm perfectly honest. It, it's definitely, um, you know, when people talk about feats that they've done, you know, rowing across one of the biggest oceans on the planet, you know, it is an achievement to itself, isn't it? And, uh, you know, you you must you must feel that sense of achievement and looking back on it and going, did I really do that? Occasionally. You know, it happened the other day when I was going through my logbook. Um, I'm writing a book. Um, whether it'll get published, who knows? Uh, but I'm enjoying writing it. And basically, I'm, I'm writing, it's a story I've told you about my life and childhood and, um, and I'm framing it, it's 60 chapters, 60 small chapters, each one is a day on the boat, looking back and relating what was happening on the boat to what's gone before in my life. So that's why I was going through my logbook the other day. And it was actually looking at those. It was uh, it was just over two weeks. It was about 15 days from the end. Uh, when I wrote, um, it's really getting hard now. Um, and there's a couple of other things that I can remember writing. I can remember how I felt at that point. I, mean, um, I was in a really, really, really bad place. Really bad place. And uh, I rang Scotty Mills, who you know, just out of the blue. And he said something to me, and he said, uh, he said about how proud he was of me for not doing what I was doing, but for sticking my head above the parapet, his words. And, you know, I said, like, no man is an island. And I put the phone down to Scotty, and I burst into tears. <laughs> um, it really, really, really helped me. But I can remember, yeah, I can remember being in quite a, quite a bad place. I, I had, when I rode into um, Antigua, the first row, it was incredible. It was like the most amazing thing that ever happened to me. When I rode into French Guiana on my own, I was done. I had no emotion, none. I had nothing left. I didn't have the mental 
and certainly not the physical energy to, to even be happy. I just didn't have it. And for about two, three months afterwards, I couldn't think of the row in a positive way because those last two weeks was that much of a black shadow over. It only took me a good two, three months to get over it. Yeah, I can imagine foresight and the hindsight of, of, of all that, you know, something that enduring um, is something that would take a while, even now, you know, over a year late, year and a half later. You know, it's probably still sinking in a little bit. Um, uh, my family keep me grounded as well. <laughs> I get that a lot. You go, uh, oh, your children must be so proud of you. And all that. Now they think I'm a bit of a dick. <laughs> same, as they think, same as any other kid thinks their dad's yeah, a bit of a exactly. dick. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You know, you're still their dad and you, you're still that knobhead that tells yeah. them what to do still. And yeah. May on that note, um, what what sort of stuff have you got going on at the moment? You talking about you've got uh, another charity thing that you're not really going to talk about too much about. You're writing that's, your book at the moment. That's, that's miles in the future. I, I had a conversation. Um, I'm really aware of how difficult all charities are finding uh, things at the moment. But in particular, you can only, <coughs> excuse me, I will not, I will not, raise money for the trendy charities and the ones to, you know, and we all know people or know of people, you see people that jump on bandwagons, that's not for me. And though there's so many different charities out there, like, you know, cancer for children and hospices and things that just, you know, they're incredible, the things they do, but you can only, I support what's in front of me and that's what I've chosen to do. So for me, that's the Royal Marines charity. I've got another thing that's really touched my life is mental health. Luckily, in touch wood, I've been okay. But we've all lost people that have succumbed to that battle. Friends. I don't know a serviceman who, who doesn't know someone who, who's lost that battle. So that's touched my life. Um, and also I'm a good friend of Janie Sanderson and Foxy. So Rock to Recovery is another charity that means a lot to me. Um, but I'm acutely aware that they need um, help now. So I'm, I'm, I've got a lot of ideas going around of something that I can do this year coming because the Amazon... Uh, Amazonian kayak, which was supposed to be now, supposed to be finished it, has been put back to next year, but I reckon there's a chance it might be the year after now. But who knows with the um, vaccines coming in, so I don't know what's going to happen, but just looking, I, I really feel that, I'm really aware that uh, the Royal Marines charity really need some money and some help. So I'm kind of thinking what I can do at the moment. I've got a couple of ideas running around my head. Um, maybe something like row, row to Norway or something like that, you know. Um, something that I can put together. Because that's the problem. Doing something big like round an ocean like takes years to plan. Uh, so it's, uh, that's, that's what I've got on the immediate horizon now. And then the triathlon. 
in 2022. So that'll be July 2022 when I do that. Frank, it's been an absolute pleasure listening to your stories. Oh, cheers, Ed. And uh, thank you very much for uh, for joining me on the podcast. No, thanks, thanks for asking me. <laughs> Mate, it's been an absolute pleasure. Cheers, bud. Cheers. And that's it. If you like the podcast, please subscribe, like, follow and share on your podcast provider. And also follow us on Instagram. Thanks for listening. <laughs>